We are so glad you've joined us today for our Tuesday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. So let's listen in now to Pastor Dave. Soon your trials will be over. And so his anger was greatly aroused. Uh, this is a good anger. It's a spirit-led anger. The Bible says we can be angry but do not sin. Most of our anger is usually selfish. Saul's anger here is not out of personal sense of hurt or offense. He, he doesn't feel slighted in any way. This is a righteous anger because he sees the horror that's going to happen to other people. Righteous anger is always an anger over the hurt of others. That's always what a righteous anger is. And Jesus displayed this anger over the hurt of others. When Jesus cleared the temple of the money changers and the animal sellers, he showed great emotion and anger. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, it says, And Jesus went to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So it seems like as he goes into the temple that he sees us and he just immediately goes and does this. Not true. In the other accounts of Mark chapter 11, 15 through 18, we're told that he actually saw this and then he goes out and makes a whip of cords. Now, I don't know how long it takes to make a whip of cords. You have to go out and find the reeds, and then you, it's not just a reed. You have to put some that effort in it to make a whip of cords. That completes this Tuesday edition of I'm Abiding sure in the Word with Pastor sure Dave Love. Join us long. Wednesday as we and continue so our study in 1 Samuel. To do this. More if than you enough live time in the area of Castle Rock you know, and are looking thinking, for a church okay, Jesus, to call home, down. be sure to come by and <laughs> visit with us. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m. and our Sunday service times are at 9 and 11 a.m. A combined to his disciples, junior and senior high class meets at 5 p.m. Because because on Saturday evenings. On Sunday mornings, high school meets during the 9 a.m. service and the junior high meets at the 11 a.m. service. Our young adults ministry arrives every Friday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Castle Rock. So I would gather that Child probably at least an hour all of our weekend from the time that he sees what's going Calvary on Castle Rock and goes and gets right the reeds, of creates whatever he needs to create, and then come back maybe Directly a half hour. Jack in the Box and but the there's Shell some gas time there where you would think, For more information about us or down. this radio ministry, please but visit our website at calvarycr.com or download our now, free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also call the church office at 303 2514. Well, we are so blessed you've joined because us of what today. It says in verse Until our next time together, we want to encourage you and it to always be overturns abiding the tables in the, the word of God. So you know money's flying everywhere. He's driving them out of there. Um, it says in verse 14, I'm sorry, 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That gives us a little hint there of where this was when he drove them out. So I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 56. In Isaiah 56, this is a chapter that speaks of salvation for the Gentiles. Okay? And so there was an area in the temple called the court of the Gentiles. And in the court of the Gentiles, which we're told in the other accounts of of Mark and stuff like that, is that um, this is where they were setting up camp in order to sell their wares and things like that. He says, this shall be called a house of prayer. Well, where is it that they pray? Well, according to here, if you could read all of chapter 56, it speaks of the Gentiles 
But it says in verse 7, and he says, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The place that the Gentiles go in God's house, the temple is the court of the Gentiles, hence the reason why it's called the court of the Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles go. For what reason? What would happen is if you're a Gentile, you would go to the court of the Gentile, and some rabbi or priest or scribe would meet you there and tell you who their God is. But because they've come to a place where they don't want to reach out to the Gentile, that in their own minds... Uh, the rabbis have been teaching them that the only reason that why the Gentiles were created was for the, uh, for the very fires of hell, to stoke the fires of hell. Outreach hasn't really become a top priority for them anymore. So as a Gentile shows up to the court of Gentiles, they don't have anybody explain to them who the God of Israel is. They've moved in there to where that's where they're going to sell their wares. This is where we're going to have the money changers. This is where the, 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 the sheep are and the, and the doves. And, and for, in order for an exchange rate there, the money changer, in order for them to uh, purchase a sacrifice so they could sacrifice when they're there during the Passover and other festivals as well. And Jesus shows up there and he says, you are hurting the people. You are hurting The Gentiles is what he's saying. You're hindering them from getting to know who our God is. And great indignation rises up because he sees the abuse of the Gentiles by the Jewish people, by the Jewish priests and the rabbis and the leaders and the Pharisees to which they don't care about them at all, to their own hurt. So Jesus' indignation is because of the hurt of others and the people that are being hurt there are the Gentiles because they have, they, there's no avenue for them to be able to find out about God because it's been taken over by extortion. They, they would charge even more than they were supposed to for a sacrifice, lining their own pockets, and that's why he calls it a, a den of thieves there in Matthew's Gospel. And so we see Jesus get angry here. Why does he get angry? Because of the hurt of others. Because of the hurt of others. And so when we look at that, we need to understand any sort of anger that we have, if that anger is not righteous indignation, why is it righteous indignation? Because I don't like the way that person is treating that person. And I'm mad at that person because they're abusing that person. It's the hurt of others. And it should be that way. As opposed to being angry because someone has somehow slighted you or offended you or hurt you, that is not from God. That's how you know the difference. I could be angry over how somebody has treated you, but you can't be angry over how they treated you. And if you are, that's sin. That's sin. Jesus never got angry when he himself was slighted. As a matter of fact, the Bible says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He only got angry when he saw the indignity of how people were treating other people. How they were being harmed in some way. 
If you're angry over how you've been treated, that's not righteous indignation. It is selfish because your eyes are on yourself. So, that's the key. If your outrage results in bringing others into a loving, restorative relationship with God, it's righteous indignation. If your anger causes us to look at ourselves, how we've been treated poorly, then that anger is selfish. And God hasn't told us to respond with that kind of anger. And so it says in verse 7, So he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And so that's great. They come out. It says in verse 8, And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. Bezek was about 20 miles from Jabesh Gilead. 330,000 responded from every tribe. It shows me how, how much the tribes have been whittled down too. That when they first came out of Egypt, they were able to muster a whole larger army than that. But now it's to the point where they, and 300,000 is still a good amount of, of men that, that come forward and everything. Um, but it could have been a whole lot more had they been uh, uh, responsive to the Lord from the moment they came in. Should have been millions by this time for how long they've been in the land. And so 1 Samuel eleven nine says, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. This all happens within seven days. That's a pretty rapid response. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. And so they were glad. Do you think so? <laughs> Bet they are. They won't have to lose their right eye and they will not have to serve such a cruel master in Nahash. And, and so they get to serve the one true God and through the kingship of Saul. And so verse 10 says, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So the men of Jabesh Gilead tell Nahash that they will come out tomorrow, meaning that they will come out from their walled city without a fight to put out their right eyes. And so Nahash is just probably just thinking, you know, he's, he's the guy. He's the new power broker on the block. And, and all of Israel now fears him, and they won't come out to save Jabesh Gilead. And, and he will be able to have them as his vassal servants. And, and all the fear will go throughout the land, and he'll probably be able to go to each town in Israel and make the same deal. So it says, so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. They came to the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The morning watch is anywhere from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so they attacked the Ammonites while it was still dark out, caught them off guard. Uh, Saul putting the people in three companies, it kind of brings us to remember what Gideon did. Gideon did the same thing um, uh, in, in doing that, whether that was the Lord who showed them that or if they were somehow remembering their history and Samuel communicated that to them. Um, we don't know. Um, but the strategy worked and they had a great military conquest. And, and so um, I would submit to you that Saul, that for Saul now begins the real battle. He has just had a tremendous victory. 
And you know after that tremendous victory, and just like we have done, maybe we, we've competed in a race or competed somehow, and we've had a victory of somehow uh, a spiritual temptations come our way, and we've had victory in it. Um, you said the right thing at the right time, and, and, and right after you do that, you're able to relish in, in what God is doing or, or whatever it might be. And then right after that, there's just something in your head that, that just kind of starts to speak to you, your own flesh, or better yet, from Satan himself saying, you're the man. You did a really good job. To which the real battle begins here with Saul in the way of pride. And how is, it, how is he going to be as he goes forward here? He's feeling really good about what God has done. And, and, and now, this is where the real battle begins. And, and let's see how he responds. And the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. How's Saul going to respond? Yeah, good idea. Yeah, those guys didn't want me leading. That would have been pride. He has just proven his leadership. He has just proven his calling. He's had a great victory with the people. Is he going to respond with that with pride or humility? And then it says in verse 13, but Paul, I'm sorry, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. That's such a great response. Which really shows us how Saul starts off. He's really humble. And he really does have the wisdom. The, the Holy Spirit is upon him. He's truly able to see things the way that he's supposed to see them. And so, he says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. He responds in a very kingly fashion. A king who's God-controlled, not Saul-controlled at this point. And he extends mercy to those who disrespected him. I'm not going to get angry with those who slighted me. But he was angry against Nahash that was going to do such a horrible thing to these people. That's righteous indignation. Yet the ones who slighted him, disrespected him, he allows God to take care of that. He has no interest in vengeance. He's not interested in making right personal slights just because he's in the power to do so. I love that. I just really wish he could have held on to that. Because we're going to find out later on he abandons that altogether. Romans 12, verse 17, it says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That doesn't mean that you're supposed to live peaceably with all men. What it means is that you're supposed to do everything you can to live peaceably, and it still doesn't happen, so be it. You've done all that you can do. You've done all that you can do. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will pay, say the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's still the answer to everything. You put it in the Lord's hands. Let him deal with it. Effective leaders use their authority to honor God, not to, uh, not to be able to take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. 
not to remedy wrongs that have been suffered by them, slights that have come their way. Saul at first here starts out very well, but we're going to see later on he becomes very, very self-serving. He has a hard time with his battle of self. And I would say, when we go through this and you look at Saul, David, Absalom, Solomon, or whatever, I would think myself personally that we could all probably relate to Saul more than anything else. Because that's the greatest battle you're ever going to have, is your battle with self. Are your eyes on yourself? And it's a battle that we all are being called to have victory in, to deny self, not to put eyes on self. And it says in verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. I thought that happened in Mitzpah. I would submit to you that at Mitzpah they accepted Saul as their king, but in Gilgal they confirmed Saul as their king. And so they go to Gilgal and they made sacrifice of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It's one thing to be appointed, anointed, yes, but that was an outward thing. Uh, They were told he was anointed. They didn't actually see um, Saul do that, uh, or I should say Samuel do that. Uh, Samuel certainly pointed him and said, this is your king. He appointed him king. But the evidence is always going to have to be in the doing. It's always going to have to be in the doing. And so a responsibility of a king came to pass. There's a township over here that is us. It's of our tribe. They're Israelites. They're brothers and sisters. They have a need. And the king rose up. And did what a king was supposed to do. And so because of that, I would say at this point, everybody wants to rally behind him. And he fought the strong temptation, the subtle temptations of pride and insecurity and revenge. He won the battle against pride and, and insecurity on this day. And he also won the outward battle, but would he continue to do so? And the reason why this is so important is because this has to do with us as well you might have had a great victory yesterday temptation came your way and you've been in the word and so God showed you the way out and you went in that direction it was a great victory but the victory of yesterday doesn't help you with what you're going to go through today you still need to have victory today and so we always need to be on guard in first Peter 5 8 it says be sober be vigilant Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There's work to be done today. And there will be plenty of time to rest in heaven today. We're required to be vigilant. And because the real war rages inside of us. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For a light affliction which is but for a moment is working us for us a more exceeding and internal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God wants us, as we submit ourselves to him, as we do that, the outward man will continue to perish. We see that as we get older. Some of us see that as we get sick, as we just uh, laid a dear saint Uh, a 13-year-old saint, um, to rest yesterday, and then we did the graveside uh, today. Um, 
We know that the outward man is perishing. But the inward man, what God wants to do inside of us, with our eyes fixed on him, with our eyes fixed on eternity. Wow. You know, one of the verses I used at the uh, memorial yesterday with, uh, with Micah Bailey is, uh, is that the word of God tells us in Romans 8.18, He's, and he, he wants us to, to understand this. He says, I want you to consider. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so consider it. Consider all the suffering that goes on in the world. Consider the suffering that uh, a 13-year-old boy goes through with cancer. Think of the suffering that takes, the worst suffering in the world. And it says, consider this. That the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And here it says, for our light affliction. I've seen some horrendous suffering before. But it still falls under this light affliction. Why? Because it's for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. No matter how horrible somebody burned in the fire and, 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 and suffers for weeks and weeks and then dies. And you go, oh, how can that be? The suffering, how great. It's not even worthy to be compared with what you're going to receive on the other side. It's one of the reasons all through the, the word of God we're told to Get your eyes on the Lord. Get your eyes on eternity. Get your eyes on the other side of heaven. It's going to be glorious. Do you think Micah is reflecting at all of how much he suffered in the last couple years? I guarantee it's never crossed his mind. He is so preoccupied with the glory of God's presence, the Lord himself, not feeling any pain, seeing and trying to take in everything that his eyes are seeing, his senses are taking in, it's not even worthy to be compared. It's that glorious. And it's one of those reasons why we're told to get your eyes on Jesus at the right hand of the Father. That we should be looking at that cross line, that finish line of knowing that I want to run the race well. I really do. I'm fixated on a verse, well done, good and faithful servant, entering the joy of the Lord. Because you have to have done something good in order to hear that. There are going to be some that are going to be let in to the kingdom of God. There's no question. But they're not going to hear those words. Because they haven't done anything well other than receiving the gift of salvation. Well done, good and faithful servant. There are many believers that aren't faithful. There are many believers that are not doing what God has called them to do. And for them to hear that word, those words, they're not going to hear it. In order to hear those words, you have to have done something well. When I had a chance to baptize Micah a few months ago at his home in his bathtub, I'd asked him, and I said, I said, if there's one thing I can pray for you about, what would it be? You know, I'm expecting that I can get better, you know, whatever it might be. And he said, 
I just want to see heaven. Exactly. I just took me a while to say, okay, <laughs> you know, let's pray. And I'm just going, wow. You know, that's a kid that had his eyes fixed on him. Have a mouth of babes. Let's pray. That's it for another edition of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. If you've missed any of these teachings and would like to catch up, you can download our free mobile app. It's a great way to take any of Pastor Dave's teachings with you wherever you go. All you have to do is go to the Apple App Store or Google Play and search for Calvary Castle Rock. Once you've installed the app, open it up and click on Teachings, and then go to On the Radio. There you can listen to today's segment or any of the previous segments by broadcast date. You can also subscribe to our radio audio podcast. If you want to learn more about our ministry, please go to our website at calvarycr.com. That's calvarycr.com. As always, thanks again for listening in today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God. Amen.